The potential cause and effect between psychiatric and metabolic disorders is a hot area in research. What is on the horizon? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Roger McIntyre, an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto, where he heads the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network. Dr. McIntyre is involved in multiple research endeavors, which primarily aim to characterize the association between mood disorders and medical comorbidity. Welcome, Dr. McIntyre. Thanks, Leslie, for having me. It's great to be here. So, Roger, I know this is an area that's near and dear to your heart these days. Can you tell us, uh, A, how you got there, and B, what's happening? Well, Leslie, you're absolutely right. This is an area that has just really, quite frankly, exploded in interest in the field of psychiatry. It started for me as an observation in in my practice with people coming to the clinic, complaining of mood disorders, and saying to me, you know, Dr. McIntyre, I've got a lot of physical health problems that go along with this depression. I've gained a lot of weight. I now have problems related to diabetes. And that observation, alongside a similar observation, where patients said to me, when I exercise and when I do things that are, you know, uh, expending energy, I'm feeling a lot better and my mood is much improved. And I really got thinking, is there something here that could inform us about new treatments uh, really boring from the area of metabolism and bringing it over to psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So, so what have you done? What we've been looking at here in Toronto is we've been looking at new treatments for uh, mood disorders. And as you know, we think about mood disorders, we think about depression, we think about behavior, cognition, some of the physical symptoms also go along with depression. So what we're doing is we're looking at novel treatments, treatments that are being marketed now in the area of diabetes, such as insulin, some of the drugs that go under the class of the thiazolidinediones, which is a big name, better known as the TZDs. And there are many compounds there, rosiglitazone, which is Avandia, pioglitazone, actose, and there's this novel new class of drugs known as GLP-1 agents that are also being developed and promoted in the area of diabetes. Each of these class of drugs are being looked at for potential application in psychiatric disorders as a way of preserving brain function, as a way of enhancing brain function, and as a way, I think, of generally improving the overall physical health of patients. Now, isn't there a risk, though, of uh, a psychiatric patient that does not have a metabolic disorder of maybe throwing that whole system haywire? There absolutely is, and I think psychiatry has a rather dark cloud over its head from the early 1900s where insulin coma therapy was uh, practiced for many, many decades, in fact, in some parts of North America up until the early 1970s. And the notion was people were given insulin, this would result in a, in a lowering of glucose, hypoglycemia, and that led to a, obviously a comatose state, which was very toxic to patients. We need to be very careful. And now we have unique ways in how we can deliver insulin uh, to the brain without affecting people's glucose levels in their body, which is safer. And some of these newer drugs, like I mentioned earlier, the TZD class, for example, would not be predicted to lower glucose levels in somebody who does not have diabetes. This would also apply to this other class known as the GLP-1 agents. So we have safer agents and tight glucose controls, what's recommended in diabetes, but we don't want to drop people's glucose levels, particularly if they don't even have diabetes, and I think these new agents offer that. So when we look at the TZDs, for example, what have you found? What we've been finding is at least in the animal models that we've been looking at, is that TZDs, thiazolidinedione drugs, seem to have an antioxidant effect. They have an anti-inflammatory effect. What's really interesting is 
hence they're marketed, they also have this insulin sensitizing effect. Along with that, if that's not enough, these drugs also seem to protect the brain from injury or neuron cells from injury. And so that's been in the, in the laboratory. In the bedside, at least in, certain, at least in terms of the bedside, looking at patients, there's now been studies published which have documented an enhancement of cognitive function in people who take these drugs, people who are not diabetic. You know, there's been a growing interest in this link between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. It's now been documented in preliminary work that these drugs, the TZDs, may preserve cognitive function in people with Alzheimer's who are not diabetic. So something is going on with these drugs that may be beneficial for the patient. And what is the risk, if any? Well, I think that you know, every drug has plenty of side effects. I think that needs to be acknowledged up front. And TZDs have their own side effects. They do, in fact, have weight gain. There is some fluid retention. There was an initial concern about maybe adverse effects on heart, which seems to have been largely settled. And there are other side effects related to how they may affect lipid profiles. But the, I think that the key issue is with these agents is that they do not lower glucose lower than we would want in a normal physiological state, so they're safer. We all want agents that do not have these serious side effects, and I think this is an area for future research to develop that. But for us, I think in psychiatry, what we truly need is drugs that can help patients' psychiatric symptoms, but not put weight gain and not disrupt their glucose levels, something we do so commonly in this field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, now, have you actually, going backwards a bit, have you looked at insulin in psychiatry? Yeah, we sure have. And you know, insulin is an interesting molecule. It's well known for its effects on peripheral glucose homeostasis, but only in the last decade has it been recognized that insulin plays a very critical role in normal and abnormal brain function and brain structure. We're thinking about insulin almost like a neurotrophic factor, like BDNF, or nerve growth factor. This is a molecule which is stimulating brain cell development, maybe also white or glial cell development, and it's also protecting the brain from insults and toxins and inflammatory processes. So if that's the case, and if we also believe what we're hearing in other lines of research that mood disorders, maybe schizophrenia, certainly Alzheimer's disease, are neurodegenerative conditions in many cases, then those drugs which preserve brain function, reduce the danger to the cell, may in fact represent viable treatment alternatives, and insulin may be one of those molecules. If we can get it into the brain safely, which we're now working on. So, Dr. McIntyre, we've, we've discussed the TZDs, even insulin. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the GLP class of medicines. Yeah, the GLP class of medicine is a, is a very novel class of drugs for diabetes, and they have a, an interesting way in how they work. Instead of just simply increasing or lowering glucose, they actually pay, pay very close attention to how the pancreas is responding per, to peripheral glucose. And they have uh, almost a synergizing effect on insulin release uh, from the pancreas in states of glucose load. In other words, they kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, they're kind of boosters for insulin secretion when you really need it and you need it most. And that's actually beneficial. So it gives you a much more, as they say, a normal physiological curve to the insulin release. What we want is we want in diabetics and certainly all people, we want insulin to uh, release to match what's normal physiology. When we have energy consumption, insulin goes up and it goes down when we're maybe fasting. And so the GLP-1 agents take us closer to that really tight insulin control that we see in normal physiological states. Are any of these medicines currently available? They certainly are. And uh, there's uh, a, a compound now that has been really under development, uh, uh, which has been an injection. 
which is uh, now available in some countries, is also a tablet which is being uh, marketed now. They're very early. It's a very new area. And certainly to psychiatry, it's completely new. Most of the research now, however, with uh, metabolic-based therapies is focused largely on the antioxidant-type compounds like the TZDs and insulin. The GLP-1 area is certainly that is a new vista for us in this field. This is probably uh, years ahead in terms of the research, but is there any, at least theoretical, advantage to combining some of these treatments? There certainly is a a theoretical uh, reason to combine uh, treatments, and that is as follows. You know, ultimately when somebody has a psychiatric disorder, we want to improve their quality of life. We want to reduce the burden of illness that they have. And people who have mood disorders, psychotic disorders, other conditions, they often have other physical health conditions. So they have other problems like heart disease, they have arthritis, often have diabetes and overweight. In fact, amongst people with mood disorders and psychotic conditions, it's heart disease is extraordinarily high, much higher than the general population. So if, in fact, we have drugs that can target some of the underlying biology, which is common to depression and other physical health problems, then we may be able to target the sort of proverbial two birds with one stone, which, of course, is a great thing. And one wonders if we can even combine these drugs with conventional antidepressants or conventional mood-stabilizing drugs to offer our patients good symptom relief, protection against the, you know, the emergence of psychiatric symptoms, but also to get underneath and treat the underlying disease process. We've been talking a lot about psychiatric conditions, but I, I wonder if there's some carryover here with other neurological problems. Um, how about multiple sclerosis? Absolutely. You know, multiple sclerosis is one uh, of several neuropsychiatric conditions. It also extends into stroke, and there's a few other conditions that we encounter in psychiatry where uh, changes in metabolism have been put forward. I think that MS per se, multiple sclerosis, is still considered to be an abnormality in immune function. And there's a host of ideas as to what may be triggering that. But what's shared in common, again, is alterations in inflammation, alterations in some of these biological mediators of stress and immunity. And it's well known, for example, in MS, steroids remain a common treatment. There's also this new class of drugs known as disease-modifying agents, which really amount to being anti-inflammatory type drugs. And these drugs, which are being employed in MS, are also being used across the board in other medical and psychiatric conditions, in which the common theme is a disturbance in immunity, disturbances in inflammation and metabolism. So it's interesting that as we've got wonderful technology at our disposal now to really parse out and elucidate pathophysiology of psychiatric disorders, we're learning a whole lot more about how uh, there's so much commonality between our disorders and many other chronic medical conditions, which then may speak to common treatment. Well, the other one that comes to mind is HIV in terms of the neuropsychiatric issues in HIV patients. Absolutely. You know, I think HIV is a, uh, an excellent example of really a chronic uh, syndrome and HIV virus has a certain affinity for, for neuron uh, cells. And uh, I think that uh, many of these patients present with very complicated syndromes, and they often require polypharmacy or combination therapy, which in and of itself uh, has its own side effect profile. But these patients are, I think, uh, you know, good examples of how you know, psychiatry and medical issues have a, a, a very significant interface. So, Dr. McIntyre, since this is such a new area, um, any recommendations in terms of people who want to learn more about this? Where, where can they look? Well, you know, the usual repositories of information like the National Library of Medicine or, or NIH, there's a, 
online services, that's certainly one place to, to look. I certainly would also encourage that uh, those who are you know, medical professionals attending uh, local, national, international meetings, whether it's in psychiatry or also in endocrinology, they're going to actually hear a lot more about this interface because it's actually being observed, it's being documented, it's being talked about. So the, those types of uh, fora are also very, very helpful. I also would, if I could mention, we have a webpage, mdpu.ca, mood disorder psychopharmacology unit.ca, mdpu. And on that webpage, there's links so they can find out more of our work in this area. And we certainly invite any of their comments. We have information there how they can access us. I appreciate you being here today, and I hope that our guests have learned quite a bit as well. So we've been speaking with Dr. Roger McIntyre, the head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.